Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have legendary Houston chef Mark Holly coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. He's a frequent traveler and passionate advocate for the Houston food scene. Matt Harris, welcome back to the show. How are you? Doing well, sir. My my ears perked up when you said legendary. I don't, I don't think that's inappropriate for Mark no, no. Holly. No, no. I, I thought you were introducing me. <laughs> yeah, I don't just go throwing that word around. I think I think Mark Holly qualifies. I, I True story. Tough but fair. Yeah. All right. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one. We're going to flash back to, oh, I'd say March or so when you were on the show. We talked about the fact that the James Beard Awards had snubbed the Houston chefs who were semifinalists. None of them advanced to the finalist stage. And we said, wouldn't it be great if Texas were its own region just like New York City is? Well, it seems the James Beard Foundation listens to the show because they announced last week that both Texas and California will now be their own regions. They've reshuffled some of the other Western regions to accommodate those changes. New York City has been merged into New York State. Um, Matt, I'm just going to throw it to you. What do you think? Like, uh, is this good for? Is this good for not just Texas but specifically Houston chefs? Is this is this a positive development? Um, interestingly enough, I really think it's good for James Beard. Why do you think it's good for James Beard? Uh, well, they they had a they had a problem, um, which was it, their their previous format couldn't keep up with the expanding dining landscape, and it just it really it was it was becoming less relevant. Right. It was becoming like by by keeping New York City as its own region and and putting California in with Nevada and uh I want to say Hawaii maybe. I believe that's correct. Yeah. That that people were going underrecognized that that it wasn't it didn't feel like a contemporary assessment of the current state of the country as a dining population, right? Sure. So these changes recognize recognize reality, right? Which is something we've known we've known for a long time. Um, but I do think you know I we can't it can't be sort of overstated like what winning a James Beard Award does for a chef's career. I mean, not to go all mob movie on it, but you are you become kind of a made man or a woman. And, you know, we've seen it with, with Chris Shepard, who's become a national figure since he won. You know, it's, it's helped Justin Yu. It helped Hugo Ortega. It's, uh, it's an important milestone. And to, to now, basically, what this really means is that Houston chefs will be competing with Austin chefs and Dallas chefs and San Antonio chefs for this recognition. And I, I think that's reasonable. I think, you know, these are very vibrant, large cities with diverse culinary offerings. I think so. Uh, I, I, you know, the part of me still says 
there's still a challenge there. Um, you know, if, if, well, there, there's a backlog, right? They're going to have to work right. through, right? Steve McHugh had cured, um, Odd Duck, uh, Bryce uh, Gilmore, Bryce Gilmore at, at Odd Duck, and then the uh, uh, the guy from Olamai, uh, Kevin, whose last name I'm not even going to try to pronounce. Right. It's uh, I forget which one. It left, starts with an F. No, right. it's Grace, Grace, Gray. Uh, yeah, now I've screwed the whole thing up. Michael. Anyway, <laughs> right, right. Michael F. Something that I can't pronounce. Correct. I was I confused him with Kevin Fink of Emmer and Rock. That, that's, well, that's, that's on me. But but that's one of those. But so anyway, the point is there have been these perpetual nominees, much like Hugo Ortega was until he finally won, who sort of reached the finalist stage, you know, seemingly by default. Yeah. Uh, so those people are going to probably get earn their recognition over the next couple of years, but then it will bubble up and, and we'll get new blood in the mix. Well, and, and I, I, I might suggest that Olame is probably more new blood than old blood, um, which is part and parcel of the challenge. Because speaking of Kevin Fink and Emmer and Rye, I, you know, the, that's likely in the conversation. Um, so. Right. And I mean, locally, you know, maybe this is what gets someone like Martin Steyer at Nobis or Ryan Lashane at Riel. Or Jason Vaughn at Nancy's Hustle, like maybe it's you know those guys can all get a shot as as it should be in my opinion. Not not just because I'm from Houston, I love Houston, but I I, I think that their food stands up. Right, Misty Norris at Petra and the Beast will obviously sure. be in the mix. She's gotten a ton of attention. Absolutely, you know, you know. So, and I think the other thing is, you know, they recognized Aaron Franklin a few years ago. There are presumably other pitmasters who might start to be in the mix. I know when I talked to Justin Yu, he mentioned he mentioned Tootsie's it's Tootsie it snows. Uh you know, no shortage of I mean, Louis Miller has already won one of the Heritage Awards, so I would think that's probably not in the mix, but you know, maybe they like maybe they like what Evan Leroy is doing at Leroy and Lewis in Austin, or maybe they're intrigued by you know, someone like uh, Leonard Botello at Truth or or the guys at Tejas. I mean, certainly what they're doing is pretty innovative. Or, uh, you know, Valentina's Tex-Mex Barbecue in Austin. I mean, that, you know, it just... Or it, or even our own Blood Brothers, right? I mean, what those guys are doing is so creative that... And it's and it just, you know, they're in they're in food and wine this month. They just got recognized by Bon Appetit. Like, you know, maybe maybe Kui Wong is, is down the road. You know, I think you have to be open for three years to be eligible, but, but down the road, like maybe that's, you know, maybe this promotes some of that talent. Well, uh, my guess is there are more changes coming. Um, and I think this is a really good first step. Um, I'm not sure how it all shakes out. Uh, one thing would say is there, there's going to be more attention, um, to the Houston dining scene. Now, how far that carries, uh, into the, semifinals and finals i'm not sure at this point well right well i mean there will be texas finalists right so the texas region will have its but but in the national categories you know god only knows but at least it it assures ensures that the the restaurant and chef committee people will have to come here to you know just to be current for the texas category and then maybe that'll bleed into the national categories but winning those things moving on to the finalists with the whole James Beard voting population is difficult because those people are not 
seemingly coming to Houston. If they come to Texas at all, they're coming to Austin for Austin Food and Wine or South by Southwest. So, you know, it, it'll be up to the committee in some way to kind of, and, and well, there are still some hurdles. There's still some hurdles. Right. So a little bit of TBD. I think it's great for James Beard. Um, Kudos to them. I do think it's a positive for the Houston dining scene. Uh, I'm a little more uh, um, buy and hold. (laughs) Fair enough. All right. Topic number two. You know, Matt, when I put together the list of Houston's top 100 restaurants, I knew they would, some of them would close. I, you know, not, not knowing specifically, but just this, the nature of the restaurant business. Not every place makes it. Uh, I didn't think it would be two weeks after the list was published that I would lose the first one. Um, and I certainly didn't think it would be Saigon House in Midtown that closed last week. Uh, I'm sad about this. I don't know. How are you? I ate at Saigon House with you several times. How, are you are you as sad about this as I am? Um, well, uh, we did eat there several times. It it really just was more surprising. I, I, yeah, it seemed to come out of nowhere. They were so busy, especially during Crawford season. They absolutely. were so busy. Yeah, um, and consistently good and and well thought of. That, yes. Yeah, this kind of came out of nowhere. Um, I've traded some messages with Tony Wynn, the chef there. He's, you know, he wants to explore some new flavors. I think they, they're looking for a new location, but, uh, so he'll be back, but, um, you know, definitely a loss, uh, for our part of the, or of Houston. Cause I don't know where we're going to go close by to get via Cajun crawfish anymore. Um, isn't there a place opening up in a uh, new brawn? Yeah. Crawfish cafe coming to the Heights. That'll be. It's just not. It's not quite as convenient. But yes, that's. I think that's that's what it's going to be, or we'll yeah. just or we'll just keep going to Chinatown like we always do. So yeah, no, I mean it's certainly. Um, again, I just you know things happen. You never really know. Selfishly, a little sad because it, it is very convenient. It was very good. Yeah, it's the nature of the business. All right, topic number three. I, you know, I have a bit of a sweet tooth. I know you have a bit of a sweet tooth. This is good news for us. Jenny's Splendid Ice Cream coming to the Heights. Uh, they haven't given us a timeline, but they took the old Carter and Cooley Deli spot on 19th Street. Um, you've had Jenny's? I've had Jenny's. I had Jenny's in Atlanta uh, last year for the first time. Uh, I'm just going to put it out there. It's very good. You may be underselling it. All right, then I'll, then I'll, okay. You want to, you want to challenge me? That's fine. Let me put it to you like this. On the day it opens, will Jenny's be the best ice cream in Houston? Ice cream. Wow. Strong. Um, if we're just talking ice cream. Not gelato, not, I, I would never ask you to disrespect Dolce Nev, but. It, it is, it is a strong contender. It, it, I would agree with you. It, it is very, very good. It is very, very good. Their flavor profiles are yeah, off I'm, the charts. Yeah, I'm, I'll, I'll put it like having had it in Atlanta, I tried, you know, three or four flavors one time. And now I seek it out. At, I don't, 
my HEB in Montrose used to carry it for a hot second. They don't anymore. So I've resorted to going to Central Market to right. get it where right. I'll pay nine or ten bucks a pint for it, which is completely outrageous. But that, um, the darkest chocolate and then that, that peanut butter ice cream with the chocolate flakes in it, it, it gets that like sweet and salty balance really, really well, but still maintains that creamy texture. It's, it's very good ice cream, and I am very excited that it's coming to the heights. And, and I say that with no disrespect to Fat Cat Creamery or Sweet Bribery, which are both like right near it, uh, because I am long, I'm, a, I'm a customer of both. Uh, not at all. They're, they are also both delicious. Yeah. But they're going to have to step their game up. Uh, I, it, uh, I, I think there's room there. Um, I like the location. Um, typically, uh, you know, when we do some of these sort of self-indulgent um, she-she dinner things, I will order Jenny's online, um, mostly because their flavor profiles are just really fantastic. Oh, so, so if you're having a dinner party at the house, you'll order Jenny's as dessert? Typically, the dinner party is somewhere else, but yes. Okay. I like that. uh, That's a money move. I like that. Yes. Their um, lemon blueberry with the cream cheese base is, it's, it's It's special. It's kind of life-changing a little bit. It, it is, it's really good. They do a great job. Um, I've visited the, the shop in Atlanta as well. And, um, I, I uh, am very excited that they're going to be here. Yeah. The only thing they won't, they won't confirm the timing or how many other locations, but they're not just going to open one. That doesn't really make any sense, right? If they're going to come to, if they're going to come to Houston, they're going to come in force. Um, I would say like, so I would not be surprised to see them someplace like Rice Village, somewhere in Montrose, somewhere in the Woodlands or Katy or any of those other places. Uh, We don't, I'm not, I'm not acting on any specific Intel. It just makes sense to me. And you know, when I, when I had them in Atlanta, they were in a food hall. So I would say any Houston food hall that wants to win my immediate affection would do well to talk to Jenny's about leasing them a little space. That's all. I'm just going to put that out there. Yes. All right. Finally, topic number four. I described this as Katie's loss as Midtown's gain. Mike Lim, friend of the show, chef at Tobio Sushi, has left that restaurant. He is going to open Kendao Sushi in Drury Place a luxury high rise that is now leasing in Midtown. Did you make it to Tobio? I have not been to Tobio yet. I've had a couple false starts, but uh, I uh, have, have heard consistently good things. Yeah. I've been to Tobio three or four times. Mike, Mike worked at uh, Roca core before he, he left. And, and I, I mean, I've, I've had consistently good food at Roca core. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think he built, he made Tobio a destination. You know, his, his plating, his knife work, his creativity. You know, those uh, tuna dinners where he would take a two hundred pound fish and break it down and turn it into courses for people. You know that that kind of theatrical, interactive kind of dining experience is really memorable. 
and really helps people kind of, you know, it's, it's a, it's something different. It's even compared to a regular omakase, which is already an elevated experience. It's, it's a very memorable evening. He's going to bring all of those tricks to canal and, you know, I don't, I don't know that there's a whole heck of a lot to say about this, but it's, it's a, it's a nice development for Midtown, which doesn't really, Ooh, do I disrespect the fish by saying Midtown doesn't have a, a signature sushi restaurant? That, that wouldn't really qualify as disrespect as much as just a declarative statement. Right. Well, there's, there's, how about there's opportunity? Yes. Uh, especially, especially when you have something like 27 stories of residential population above you, all of whom are paying, oh, you know, $1,800 or more a month to live there. They might really like a restaurant like that. Yeah. A really elegant sushi restaurant with a really talented sushi chef. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, you know, that's, uh, there is a nice concentration of what I would consider, um, good to very good um, sushi places and kind of that radius of Midtown going over to right. Kata, I mean, and, right. MF Kata and, MF and now Kokoro and in, in Bravery. I mean, you know, there's... Yes, can we, can we just say, if you haven't been to Kokoro, you really should go. It's the best restaurant in Bravery, in my opinion, with no disrespect to the other four... And also, it's probably a top five Houston sushi restaurant. It, it just is the the experience, the aesthetic that uh, um, everything. I, I just really like everything that they're doing. And you've been to Japan what like three times in the last two years? Um, a, a few more. Okay, so you speak from some perspective. Is all we'll, we'll say less than ten. All right, more You're, than five in the last two years. So you you have that you have that opinion about the sushi with some perspective and experience is all is the is the point I'm trying to make to the listeners who don't necessarily know you and who who aren't following you at that guy Houston on Instagram which they should be. That's very kind, but Kokoro is very good. Kokoro is very good. All right, I'm a fan. Canal will be very good. Yep, looking forward to it. All right, that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating. Matt, for our restaurants of the week, we're going to talk about a new Tex-Mex restaurant and a new sandwich shop. Let's start with Candente, the new Tex-Mex restaurant from Sandbrook's Management, the owners of the Pit Room and 1751 CN Bar. Like 1751 CN Bar, you were on the team that built the restaurant for Sandbrook's. Uh, I say that in the interest of both full disclosure and to congratulate you on the transformation of the Cane Rosso space into a Tex-Mex restaurant. It, um, it flows better, in my opinion. Just the simple act of moving the front door from like halfway down the side of the building to very close to the parking garage is just like such a logical, small thing. But it just it makes, it makes the experience... A little more comfortable just that you know that five percent better so tell me a little bit about kind of the other changes you made to the space because we'll start with that i i really would just encourage people to go uh and experience for yourself but uh 
it's it's a very modern um you know the uh i believe the tagline is handcrafted tex-mex and it's uh it's got a nice um contemporary feel um just a, a lot of just well thought out changes moving the doors some uh nice custom copper tables uh good yeah. pops of uh color right bright orange right candente is kind of incandescent so you've got that that fire and of course you know an open kitchen with a with a wood burning grill and a Jasper oven kind of defines the cuisine that's coming out of the kitchen correct all right so so let's talk about the food i mean at this point like we all have our favorite tex-mex places uh somehow uh candente's been open for uh, in the in the two weeks it's been open, I've been four times. This is um, it's very close to where I live, which makes it easy, but also very dangerous. Um, this is this is very good, Tex Mex. Yes, this say I, I you know I'm very serious about food. There's a nice red line between what I do for work and my opinions on food. And I will say it's very good. <laughs> right. If you, <laughs> yeah, if you didn't think it was very good, we just wouldn't talk about it. I'd, I'd, I'd talk about it with somebody, one of the other co-hosts, I think, would be sort of the compromise. I think that's fair. Um, but let's talk about some of the things that make it so good. Um, chips and salsa, right? You get your choice of, well, they give you red and green. Uh, the red, you know, smoky, the green more herbal is not really the right world, but it's got that tomatillo acidity to it. Uh, the queso is creamy. It melts your chips properly. The tortillas are soft and fluffy. Um, but really I think it's the wood smoke from those grills that, that really kind of defines the fajitas, you know, the pollo asado, the, I, I mean, the carnitas are, are, sorry, Michael, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. The carnitas are fucking incredible. I mean, it's unreal how good they are. Why are you apologizing to Michael? Because he's going to have to bleep that word. Uh, out. It's more work for Michael. Oh, uh, I thought you meant Michael Sandbrooks. No, no, no. Michael, no, no. Sandbrook's, probably Michael Sandbrooks is to be congratulated for how fucking good his carnitas are. Uh, they are crispy on the outside. They are juicy in the middle. They are, they are one of the best bites of pork I've had in a really long time. And I say that knowing how good those chipotle barbecue sauce smoked pork ribs are also on the menu. Um, I don't know what, what are you've been, you've been maybe even more times than I have. What are you sort of gravitating towards over multiple visits to Candente? Uh, I, I, I'm really, uh, like their cheese enchiladas quite a bit. Yeah. Classic chili gravy, right? Nice gooey cheese. And those enchiladas are pretty solid across the board. The beef enchiladas are very addictive. I like that you can get, uh, a combination plate with a crispy beef taco, a beef enchilada, and a cheese enchilada uh, for 16 bucks. That seems very reasonable to me. I was at the new Los Tios. That's essentially the same as what they're charging for the same plate. Um, I mean, for the quality of what they're doing at Candente, it's, it is noticeably cheaper than its obvious competitors like El Tiempo and Papacitos and Ninfas. And, you know, that you can get an $8 house margarita, um, you know, at a time of $10 and $12 cocktails 
you know, I, I appreciate that. Yes. Uh, and as, as a non-drinker, I appreciate that they have quality Aguas Frescas. Yeah, three of those, plus Topo Chico, plus, you know, my beloved Coke Zero that I just I need a certain amount of. Yeah, that, that presentation of the uh, Tampacana with the cheese enchiladas and the Neiman Ranch ribeye below it uh, is, that's pretty good eating. I'm a happy, I'm a happy boy. Yeah, I have not had the ribeye fajitas yet. I have not paid up for that. But as someone who has frequently described filet as mushy and flavorless, I think filet fajitas are stupid. I've said that on the show multiple times, usually in the process of making fun of my beloved friend, Mary Clarkson, who's, who loves them. But ribeye fajitas, fatty, beefy, like that makes sense to me. That I will pay for. Yes. And also, they're delicious. I believe you, and I look forward to trying them. Um, anything else? No, I just, um, yeah, I, again, I, I think it's just would encourage people to go. Uh, the menu is, is, is really flexible. They've got some vegetarian options. Uh, I think it's the price points are, are reasonable. Uh, it's a very good value proposition. Um, and, you know, you can go for snacks, happy hour. The queso is great. The nachos are great. You could go for, for a dinner. Um, and you can go with the group and get that $105 platter with the fajitas and the quail and the shrimp brochettes and the grilled yeah. shrimp and uh, the that tr- carnitas those shrimp and the whole thing. are serious. Yeah. They're so yeah. Congratulations to those guys. They, I, I, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, I'm a huge fan of the pit room. I, I have been, uh, basically since the day it opened, and Candente is a is a really smart extension of what they're doing, and frankly, I would not be surprised if they are looking to grow that to additional locations. Uh, and then, just briefly, I want to talk about Ike's Love and Sandwiches. This is the California-based sandwich shop that just opened at the corner of Eleventh and Heights. It is in the same shopping center as Dish Society. If that helps orient it for people. Across uh, from Eight Flint. Across from Eight Flint. What I thought was semi-interesting is that the uh, local partner in this particular venture is Mark Appel. That may not mean anything except to the most devoted of Astros fans who, I, I mean, I don't, you know, keep throwing around that I don't want to disrespect anybody, but it would not be completely inappropriate to call him one of the most notorious draft busts in Major League Baseball history. Uh, I came here to talk about food. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was not prepared or apprised of this format change. <laughs> right. We're not going to talk about the, the baseball career of Mark Appel. But anyway, the point is, he's not throwing a baseball anymore. He's in the sandwich business now. It, we, now, if we want to talk about current day Astros, present day Astros. Very exciting. Very exciting. It's, it's, they, they have overcome not having Mark Appel in the rotation. Somehow they have muddled through to to break the sometime this week though will break the team record for most wins in a season. No one's more surprised about that than you. That's not true. Oh, I mean me. Fair enough. All right. Uh but let's talk about Ike's Love and Sandwiches. You know, um we we're in kind of you know, we have Mendocino Farms, another California based sandwich shop that opened. Those those combinations can be 
a little bit adventurous isn't the right word. Baroque is maybe too negative. They're, they're, those Mendocino Farm sandwiches are somewhat complicated, right? The, the sandwiches at Ike's are pretty straightforward. They are different meats and cheeses with sauces and your choice of three or four different kinds of bread. Uh, they are more like what I think of as a sandwich just from their ingredients, the, the way they assemble ingredients. Um, and yeah, the more menus, like a sandwich shop. Yeah. I don't uh, think of Mendocino Farms as a sandwich shop. Right. Uh, right. Mendocino Farms is a restaurant that serves sandwiches. Ike's is a sandwich shop. 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 Easy for me to say. What did you think of Ike's? Um, you know, it's interesting. It's the, it's a large menu. It's very hard to figure out what to order. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of kitschy. They've got like you know little cute names. Um, yeah, they're all named after people. There's, so. there's an Andrew Luck. They they did one for Grant Pinkerton with his brisket. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That we we got the Madison Bumgardner and the uh, the Reuben the Pee Wee Paul. <laughs> oh yeah, the Paul Rubens. Paul Rubens. Pee Wee Herman himself. Um, so, and they, <laughs> can we get a little, little, uh, Pee Herman <laughs> just for you? Yeah. Uh, but, uh, they, they, they were, they were, they were okay. See, I, I actually liked them a little better than okay. I'm trying to remember. I had one with like pepperoni and roast beef and turkey and cheese that I, frankly really enjoyed like that was a, a good combination of kind of you know rich kind of salty meats that all and they do that dutch crunch roll that i thought was pretty good and then the meatball is named after michael jordan i don't quite know well he's italian yeah right is that a chicago thing like i literally I, i'm not quite sure but um but the nice thing is they they have add-ins that you can add to your sandwich one of which is fried mozzarella sticks and so to be able to pay three extra dollars to shove mozzarella sticks into my meatball sub just made me really, really happy. Uh, I get that. Yeah. I'm not saying you're wrong. Uh, so the one criticism, so I posted these on my Instagram story. The immediate feedback from people who've tried it is that they think it's a little bit expensive for what you get. That may have been my comment as well. Yeah, it, it was. I was just wanting to see if you would own it here on the show. Oh. That was me. It wasn't just you. I, I you were that. not the you were not the only one. Yeah, the sandwiches run ten or eleven dollars with no sides. Obviously, I paid up and to more. add right, right up to I think thirteen, fourteen bucks. Um, at that point, you kind of get into uh, local foods territory, which makes very good sandwiches that come with these great two great vegetable sides with every sandwich. That's probably a better value, even if. I might prefer the combinations at Ike's a little more just because they're a little more straightforward. Yeah. I, the, the combination that that's the attractive part. I mean, the, the flavor profiles there, they're interesting it, and, and they was tasty. Just, uh, um, it wasn't the sandwiches by themselves weren't quite enough to be a meal and you know, you're for two sandwiches. Right. Yeah. You had chips and a drink. You're at 20 bucks a person, which is a lot of money for a sandwich. So, and, and, and which is fine. And if, and if that's, that makes sense to you, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. Yeah. I'm not here to tell other people how to spend their money, but just sort of be aware that, you know, a sandwich and chips and a drink is probably going to run you 
17, 18, 20 bucks. Sure. Uh, and then the only other thing about eating there is they, there's not like ventilation for the oven that they use to heat the sandwiches. So there was like a haze in the dining room that was extremely unpleasant. And I inquired and was told that they're going to have a hood. Um, I don't know that I will eat in that. It, like I might eat on their patio in nice weather. I might take it to go. I don't think I'm going to eat in the dining room again until they, there's not a haze. Uh, I don't specifically recall a haze when I was there, um, but I did take it to go. So yeah, distinct, like smelly cloud in the in the ceiling of the restaurant. Really, mm. really unpleasant. Yes. Well, my my general smell is pleasant, so it may just have been just me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, preventing my so, but yeah, I got it to go, it, and it and it, and it is kind of a a small, small place. But you know, if I'm in in the Heights area, in the mood for a sandwich, would I stop by? Probably right. And I like I don't know that I'll seek it out necessarily. I don't I don't really crave sandwiches all that often. When I do, I tend to go to Kenny and Ziggy's. But you know, if I if if they, I assume they will open more of these. Uh, inevitably one of them will probably come somewhere near the young media office near the Galleria. Uh, and then I will probably be a more regular Ike Steiner. Matt Harris. Thank you very much. True story. I'll be right back with Mark Holly. <laughs> You're listening to what's Eric eating. I'm joined this week by Mark Holly, the executive chef of Davis street at Herman park. But of course, known for a number of Houston restaurants, including his time at Brennan's, his, uh, his time at Pesce, and after that, Holly's, the uh, seafood restaurant in Midtown. Mark Holly, welcome to the show. How are you? Doing well. Thank you, Eric, and thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I always like to start these interviews at the beginning, so how did you enter the world of professional cooking? Well, I, uh, I'm originally from Dayton, Ohio, and I came here uh, as a student uh, and uh, started to work in restaurants. And I started, it wasn't quite culinary, but I was a cook at the Mason Jar, which was uh, in the early mid-80s. I don't know if oh, yes, people yeah. still remember the Mason Jar. Uh, I remember just having really good tortilla soup and a yes. pretty good chicken fried steak. And a pretty good chicken fried steak. Uh, to name a few. And uh, so I I guess my first introduction was um, I took a job uh, for the Meridian, which was back when Air France was pretty popular in this city. And uh, it was, uh, I guess, back then, it, you know, to be a chef or to be considered or even to plan to be a chef, you wanted to get some good training and um, kind of a French cuisine or classical training is what we call it. And so I took that job and um, stayed on board a little over a year, and then they decided to leave, and I guess that's when the Doubletree came open, and that's when I met uh, Carl Walker of uh, Brennan's of Houston. Uh, started there as a, um, uh, a, line, a line cook, and um, it ended up probably being my most notable experience and you know, if if I ever did it over again, that's one thing that I would definitely do again is join the Brennan's family. Right. So, I mean, Brennan's is trained. 
I mean, a couple of generations of Houston chefs. I mean, you know, you were there, Randy Evans, Chris Shepard, Bobby Mattis, who's now at State of Grace. What What is it about that experience that that puts people on such a such a sound footing, both as like a a culinary technician, but also as like a future restaurateur? Well, I think some of it is experience, and some of it is culture. You pick up the, the family's culture. You know, I joke about being creolized, but coming from Ohio and ending up uh, cooking the type of food that I do, and Brendan's is a big um, uh, uh, responsible party for that. Um, it's the culture of family. It's the culture of uh, food. It's the culture of, uh, you know, kind of having an opportunity. And so, meaning, you know, you can move. There's room to grow. And so with most of, most of us that work there, we all kind of started here and we, most of us are the ones that went on and continued, uh, ended up in some, some of the better, better positions there. The other thing is, uh, the people on board, uh, to start with, uh, like Jose Arevalo, um, Jose Arevalo is a, a legendary, uh, cook for me. Yeah. I don't, I don't know that most Brennan's patrons know who that is but he's i mean he's the sous chef who kind of makes the trains run on time there right i don't i don't know that brennan's functions as a restaurant without jose working behind the scenes and absolutely and uh one thing to go on to mention is that a lot of the people you mentioned and chefs who has went on jose was kind of their mentor uh slash um confidant slash um you know person that they kind of learn that entry level and move them to the next level uh one of the best palates you know in the city um and uh i also had an opportunity to continue to work with the family and go to commander's palace which is where i had the opportunity to work with the late jamie shannon uh that was a heck of an experience uh at commander's palace and something that um, is very close to me. Uh, I picked up a, a lot of, um, I guess, a lot of the culture and a lot of their food ethics and um, uh, just uh, uh, the notoriety of a restaurant like that just kind of helps someone navigate uh, later in his career to the top. Yeah, uh, Beard Award winner, right? Uh, kind of kind of picked up after, uh, after Emerald had left Commanders and kind of, kind of brought what what is truly one of the great like iconic american restaurants into the modern age i think it's kind of his it's kind of his role in the world yes uh he was he was he was a master when he was around he uh his career and his life was short-lived and um you know it's there's great memories um there's a cheesecake that just about every um restaurant as a chef that i do i always include jamie's cheesecake uh, to our repertoire and our menu <laughs> at some point. All right. So you went to, you went from Brennan's to commanders. When did you come back to Houston? Uh, well, I came back to Houston and, um, to go and back to Brennan's and there I returned for about another six years as the executive sous chef under directly under Carl Walker, uh, did that for six or seven years. And he created, I guess the opportunity or the space in the organization for me to grow and learn. And so I felt like if I was able to do that, then I would stay there. Uh, after that, in 2000, um, 
I was actually uh, offered an opportunity to open, be one of the opening chefs in the Commander's Palace in Las Vegas. Uh, but uh, lo and behold, you know, I met Johnny Caraba and Damian Mandola, and those guys uh, had a, I guess, another plan for me, and that was to come on and open uh, the new restaurant and seafood concept, Peche, which was on Alabama and Kirby. Yeah, and just, I, I mean, I... You know, I I remember, you know, a moment when it seemed like, and, and this is kind of, you know, I wasn't involved in the food world professionally, but, you know, it just seemed like, like all of a sudden, I guess my parents kind of fell in love with that restaurant because all of a sudden, like every birthday was at Peche, every special occasion was at Peche. Uh, you know, I think I, I told you this story once where we went there with my grandmother and my sister and her then boyfriend, and they all... They all ordered the Dover Sole special, which flagrantly violated. My father had a rule. You could order whatever you want as long as it wasn't the most expensive thing on the menu. But once grandma did it, you couldn't, he couldn't correct my sister or, or now her husband. And so he got, anyway, he got a massive bill that he was very unhappy about. But that wasn't, that wasn't your fault. It was a very delicious piece of fish. Um, but just talk about kind of Peche's role in the culinary world because I, I feel like it, it had a moment as maybe one of the best restaurants in Houston for, for a period of time. Well, one, and maybe I should have started to say this, is my cuisine that I'm known for uh, is basically responsible, uh, me being, a, um, um, I guess, a product of my environment. And so being at Brennan's and being um, kind of creolized, at Peche, I met Johnny Caraba, who uh, was one of the smoothest operators in the front of the house that I've ever worked with, and Damian Mandola, who was a front-of-the-house entrepreneur but also a great chef. He shared recipes. Uh, he shared some of his organizational skills, things that um, contribute to what I am all about and how I structure each kitchen that I move into. Right, so you had kind of the French Creole tradition from Brennan's, uh, Johnny and Damien, both known for Italian cuisine. So how did you blend that at Peche? Well, so there was two guys, or two chefs, who inspired me at that particular time. And uh, one is Javier Lopez. Um, Javier is from Mexico, and he worked with me at Brennan's, but he was my sous chef. And we started dabbling into uh, some Mexican dishes and just some, I guess, some culture, some Mexican uh, philosophies with food and so on, with the, the flavors and the, the chilies and so on. There was another gentleman, Jonathan, Jonathan Long, who was from Cambodia, um, who worked for Graces at Carabas from some period of time, uh, was from Cambodia and was the one who really introduced me to blending that the whole Creole thing with a little Asian twist. So up until today, that's part of my cuisine, which I'll get to when I get to Holly's. But Jonathan was one of the guys that really paved the way and taught me how to take those flavors and balance them in a culture of Asia, which I wasn't really familiar with at that particular time in my career. All right, so, so Peche kind of takes off. It has a good run. You'll have to help me out here. At some point, Tillman Fertitta buys it, doesn't he? Tillman bought it. It was probably four years after uh, it was open. 
Um, you know, I mentioned Creolized, and he, he mentioned Italianized through the uh, the Caraba Mandola. And, you know, there was a time that, you know, I spent with Landry's, and I joke about the Landry knives, but um, I spent uh, six years after uh, Tillman had bought it, and I was pretty much the operating partner chef there and uh, tried my best to keep everything as spec and as to what, you know, I intentionally uh, planned for Peche to do. It, it was a great experience working with Landry's. I learned a lot about the numbers, learned a lot about um, business and, and um, also being able to reach the clientele uh, from a chef's perspective and finding out what people really like and what they really want and getting out in the dining room, uh, which is where I started uh, the early part of my career doing. Yeah, so can we have one good Tillman story? Is there like one <laughs> colorful well, okay, on-the-record anecdote? All right. So uh, we uh, we had a great coconut cream pie. Uh, it was rather intense, um, very good coconut cream pie. Uh, we used a certain amount of, um, um, instead of using the milk in the traditional way, we did carnation milk, and we tried to keep it as old school as possible. And so, it was it was it was a great coconut uh, pie. Tillman um, had mentioned that his mom's coconut pie um, that you know he liked it, and it was a little different. And he kind of recommended that um, we put it on the menu and take my coconut pie off the menu. So. Um, you know, we talked about it, and um, there were some guests who were a little concerned with it, and this was before I even tasted it. And so I kind of argued the point, and I didn't get around to taking it off. And two or three, um, two or three visits by Tillman uh, asking uh, about the coconut pie. And so one day he was actually there, and I was off, and so he decided to 86 the pie, and left the recipe and just asked me to please try it, taste it, give me my opinion and see if we could improvise on it. And so it is a good kind of a modern take on a coconut cream pie. You know, chefs are very opinionated and somewhat selfish. And, you know, I had my mind made up that I didn't want to really do it, although it was a good pie. So long but, and but was short. But was it better than your pie? Uh, there's not a lot. Of uh, coconut cream pies that I think was better than my pie out there, period. <laughs> so we can all laugh about it. He and we ended up putting it on the menu. It is a really good pie. You can find some of it is in his establishments. But that was really the only argument that I felt was a worthy argument that I had with Tillman the seven years I was with him. All right. So so Pesce kind of comes to the end of its run. And then you kind of laid low for a couple of years. Then you opened Holly's in Midtown. How did you, so you had, you had all these different experiences and, and I just, Holly's was kind of this, um, I mean, it had a lot going on and, and really kind of synthesized like your cuisine. I think it was a It was definitely a step forward for you. How would you, how would you describe what you were trying to achieve with that? Well, uh, so going into Holly's, I had to, um, really stop and think about who is Mark Holly, what has he done, and 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 you know it was my namesake, and there's a part of me that I really didn't get an opportunity to express in my food in the earlier years. 
which was Southern Cookie. Right, which doesn't necessarily seem like an obvious thing for a boy from Ohio. Right. <laughs> Although my mother was from Georgia, and I uh, experienced several cuisines young in life. I was probably one of the few guys in my neighborhood that ate anchovies on his pizza. But also, and that was my father's home, and then in my mother's home, she was a true Southern cook to this day, which is where, and I'll tell you a little bit more here shortly, I've infused her recipes and and kind of that whole southern side that we grow grew up with. Right, because I'm I mean, we can be explicit about this. I mean, you had spent your whole career kind of working for other people and then at Holly's you got the chance to do your own thing like very clearly your own establishment. So, what were you doing at Holly's that was different than what you had done previously? Well, uh so when I went in and and I thought about Holly, it took me back to a lot of parts of this interview, working at uh, with Javier Lopez, working with Jonathan Long. And so today, and well, at Holly's, my cuisine was Pan-American, which is uh, Central and South American ceviches, etc. And it was also Pan-Asian, which is what I talked about, um, you know, getting from the relationship with Jonathan Long. Uh, our Thai snapper, our shrimp with Moscow, and those type of favorites were kind of our Pan-Asian, Pan-American. I've always been seafood, so that was easy. But I threw in um, the whole southern twist with the collard greens and the kimchi and uh, Hoppin' John and a few other specialties, as well as the uh, coconut cake. Yeah, and you had a couple of uh, very promising up-and-coming chefs when you opened that place, right? You were working with uh, Brandon Silva, who's now at Wooster's Garden. Right. Uh, Kenton Marin, I know. Uh, yeah, he's um, he's a chef at a restaurant in Mexico. Yeah. Patty Delgado, Delgado, who's at Vibrant. She's a chef at Vibrant, who is my uh, executive sous chef for the majority of the time. And there was un- one other ge- gentleman, uh, Alejandro Betancourt. Uh, he's in Belize right now. He was a great guy. He also taught me a lot about ceviches and about South American cuisine, and he was from Colombia. Yeah, I want to say he was at Latin Bites at least for a little yes, while. Yes, he was there before he came to Holly's. Right. So, all right. So, this. Uh, so you had this this huge restaurant, uh, what like ten thousand square feet or some crazy. Right. It was a little over uh, six thousand, about sixty seven hundred. Yeah. Um, what are you proud of about about that place? And then what did you kind of learn from it? Because it didn't it didn't quite make it through. Once the after well, the hurricane, it it kind of. I was, I was proud about having the opportunity. And, you know, unfortunately, on the way to success, you're going to fail once or twice. I don't feel like we failed. I felt like, you know, there was a lot to be proud of. We won Best Restaurant of the Year. We had a very good staff. I was able to learn a lot more and expand my knowledge, especially in South American cuisine. Um, I learned a lot about the front of the house, about the business side of things, um, there was some financial strains at the beginning and going over budget, uh, but we maintained. Uh, we were a $3 million restaurant uh, toward the end, which is when uh, Harvey, it's kind of funny and ironic, when Harvey hit, you know, we came to the building and everything was intact. Two days later, there was sewage coming up from our inside drains. So we dealt with it. We thought we had solved the problem. We opened, uh, came back up. We continued to do that. We stayed closed another two to three weeks. 
I was a very small business owner. One of the things that I did learn about capital and so on. Um, but we, uh, I had salary managers. I had people who, um, you know, had lifestyles and I wasn't really in a position to continue to pay them that rate and not be able to get the restaurant open. So that's when I chose to decide to close it. Uh, we were very successful on the last day we were open Saturday night. We did over 250 people. Uh, and it was just something that, you know, I had to put under my belt and, eventually uh, move on and kind of get to where I'm at today. All right. Yeah. So let's talk about where you're at today. Davis street, the, the restaurant on Almeida, right in the shadow of Herman park. It had a, you know, it had a brief run as kind of a really creative spot with a lively brunch and a good dinner crowd. And then it closed. It had its own chef issues. So how did you come to be involved in the restaurant? Well, um, you know, that period was a tough period for me after Holly's, and I tried a few things. I tried something in Clear Lake and did some consulting there, and I was really trying to find out what was next for me. Um, I'm meant to do what I'm doing. I'm meant to be in a restaurant serving people, pleasing people, and I knew that. I mean, did, was, you, did you think about, like, maybe it was just time to, like, take the corporate job or the catering gig or the... Yeah. You're exactly right. I actually was interviewing with a, country, a local country club, and uh, they wanted um, the relation, our relationship to work. And then Davis Street kind of fell in my lap accidentally. Uh, it had been closed for two years. And so, um, you know, the owner and I, who is not in the restaurant business, um, decided to reopen it. And it's sort of a continuation of Holly's, uh, as well as there's some, you know, if you look at my cooking, I can't avoid, you know, the, the Peche taste and flavors, um, can't avoid Brennan's. And so it's a combination. I think of mo what I have, my career, we have a side on the menu that has classics. So that's some of the stuff that Mark, Chef Mark Holly has done over the years. Uh, I was able to get probably 20% of my employees there's a lady there, who, her name is uh, Teresa Florentine, who's worked with me for 16 years. My sous chef, uh, Ricardo, has been with me, uh, English, for about six years on and off. Uh, several of the waiters. My assistant manager, uh, Bella, uh, has been with me. Uh, well, she was with me through Holly's, and I just picked up a new sommelier, um, Glenn Newbeck, who we're really excited about and definitely get in and try some of our great wines. All right. So I, I want to talk about what you're doing at Davis Street, but I want, I want to back up for just a, a half a step. You had the choice between the country club and the restaurant, knowing essentially that the country club would be an easier lifestyle, right? Like a, a simpler service, all that, like, why go, why go back into a restaurant with all the, the stress and the pressure and the demands? Well, I think it would have been more stressful at the country club because maybe that isn't where my passion was. Okay. You know, I joke about never working a day in my life and enjoying going to work every day and being with people and creating food. I'm more of a liaison now in the front and the back of the house. I, I have a chef to cuisine and a sous chef. And so I'm doing what you know, naturally, uh, what I was born to do and what I was put here to take care of people and create and, 
And really, you know, I, I want to feel like, you know, I'm a mentor. I've worked with a lot of people, a lot of chefs, a lot of young chefs who are still up and coming. And so my goal is just to get in and have fun and share as much as I can, give away as much as I can through recipes, development, and so on. Um, and so uh, it was a much easier, less stressful life than probably country club. I probably would have made it somewhat difficult. I probably would have went. <laughs> Trying to change it to a restaurant, and uh, that probably would have been a little difficult, you know, for the members. Uh, but the, I mean, I'm probably less stressed now because I'm having fun. I'm cooking. I'm in there. I'm working with people. I'm uh, mentoring and just developing people into, you know, their next level in the industry. All right. So, what are you? You said you've got some sort of Holly's classics on the menu. You've got how much is how much is sort of Holly's and how much is sort of I mean, I if, well, I if you asked me about what Davis Street was, they did a Thai shrimp dish that they, they were, did a that Thai was very shrimp. popular, and it's very popular. Uh, we put a little twist on it, but left it what it was. It's still a great dish. Um, Holly's is probably seventy percent. Um, there's a few ideals and you know creations from Pesce that we've kind of redone. Brennan's is the foundation of my food, so it's all over the menu. Uh, and so there's some new things, uh, you know, that we're working on. Uh, I want to get to where, you know, we can do and and I have a chef coming on who's going to do some research and development with me. And we're going to work with fermentations and making more sausages, kimchi and so on. Something that in some of my other endeavors, I just never found time to do. So I'm at a point in my career where I have the staff to hold down the fort and I can venture on and just continue to kind of recreate some new things yeah i mean you've been open for what about a month one month four weeks how's it how's it feel to be back in the kitchen How, it, how's it going it feels great it feels great to be in the kitchen to work with people uh, we are presently open for dinner uh between 5 30 and 10 o'clock 11 on the weekends we open uh we're going to uh do a sunday supper and so uh, when I think of Sunday supper, I think about mom. I think about grandmoms going over there. You, you know uh, what? You know what? Everyone who's listening to this is thinking about right now, right? Fried, Two words: fried chicken. That, that's right. And so we're going to definitely offer fried chicken. It's kind of one of those things. It's going to switch from week to week, but the fried chicken, the mac cheese, and some of the favorites will be there. Uh, when you went to grandma's house, you didn't always ask what was on the menu. You showed up. You showed up with an appetite. Uh, and you probably made a little small uh, reservation, so you definitely want to do that and let us know you're coming by. But it's something fun. We're thinking about we are going to do red uh, and white checkered tablecloths and mason jars. You know, we'll give our staff a, a chance to scale down and put their blue jeans on. And we just want to have fun and just share that whole Southern uh, flavor and uh, tradition. Yeah, I mean, I I love that you're – you know, that you're known for these like intricate seafood preparations, delicate ceviches, but also like maybe the best fried chicken I've ever had in my life. I mean, well, cast iron, cast iron fried, properly brined and breaded. I, I mean, it's, it's excellent. Well, thank you. The first 15 years in my career, I, I, I'd never cooked Southern food. So halfway through Pesce, I started, um, well, looking right. into it. And it, was, it and it wasn't considered sort of worthy of a chef of your level, right? Or the kind of restaurants you were working at. Right. So it's now it but now it's I mean it's driving a lot of American gastronomy and has for the last 15 years. Yes. So, so uh, but I mean but it's not it's 
I mean, it's got to feel good that you can express that side of your culinary heritage. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, Mom would be proud of me, and Grandma probably would, too. Uh, We're also doing brunch. Uh, We're going to do brunch on October the 20th. It's going to be kind of a New Orleans-style brunch. So we have some of our stuff we did, our, our items we did from Holly's. And we're also going to, we got some, some newer items we want to do as well. And one other thing, just to, to get to the close, is on Wednesday night, we're going to do Wednesday and jazz. So we're going to kind of tone everything down, put some candles and white tablecloths and kind of make it romantic or just make it to where, you know, you can come, you can relax, you can listen to jazz, you can get a, a shot of your favorite scotch or bourbon and just create a good environment there for a little music. Uh, on that particular day. All right. Well, Mark, I mean, that kind of brings me to the end of my questions, unless you have something else you would like to discuss. No, no, I'm fine. All right. Well, then I always wrap these interviews up with something I call the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Mark Holly, what is your favorite cookbook? Hmm. Patrick Clark. Patrick Clark was a chef from New York. He was around for many years. Uh, I think it's called Patrick Clark. Uh, it is. He's a chef. He was a mentor of mine, but I've used a lot of his recipes. He happens to be, to be an African-American chef who was one of the top chefs in the country probably 20 years ago. Definitely Google it and you will find it, and I'm sure you will enjoy it as much as I do. All right. What is, your, what is the first uh, band you ever saw in concert? I saw, uh, as a kid, um, uh, the Funkadelics, George Clinton, land a mothership connection in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was the first time I ever traveled outside of Dayton, which was four hours away. But we all got in a um, station wagon, and we went there. And uh, this was probably back in the 70s. Yeah, but good- if you guys know about George Clinton and the Funkadelics, they landed the Mothership Connection that night, which was a big ship that they had on sh- on a stage. That, that's, a, that's a great answer. Uh, who is your, no, what is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Uh, with a drive-thru? Yeah. That's how I define what, what, what constitutes fast uh, food. That's a tough one. You know, I'm a big chicken fan. Um, um, wow, that is a tough one. Um, it would It would have to be one of the, fried chicken places i would have to if it has a drive-through that kind of uh you know takes away you know believe it or not I, i'm i'm gonna be totally honest here uh burger you know after after work um after turning down sugar all day because i'm always on a diet and trying to keep everything clean and then being able to sneak home and but before i go and, and have a wine you know i'll stop by Warner burger all right uh and who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? Probably Warren Moon. That's a good answer. He, um, he must have know, been a Peche regular back in the day. He, yeah, he he was, and and he made it to Hollies a couple of times. But it, the other thing, it was during an era when you know African American quarterbacks were just starting to really evolve, and he came from Canada. And he, he stumbled a little bit, but he ended up breaking a lot of records, and I believe he made it. He's in the, Hall, the of Hall of Fame. Absolutely. Yeah, we gotta get we gotta get Deshaun Watson into Davis Street. That's yes, absolutely. All right. And then finally, when you go out for pizza, what is your go to pizza order? What are your favorite toppings? Ooh. So I'm gonna start with anchovies. 
because that's where, you know, it has to all start. Uh, I'm more of a meat lovers. You know, I'm a sausage, uh, pepperoni, just, you know, if they have ham, Canadian bacon, but definitely finish it, you know, with onion peppers. I'm kind of a deluxe guy because I love vegetables. I think they add a lot to the pizza. So if you look at Supremes or whatever, I like those loaded with jalapenos and sometimes some jalapenos. I mean, some, I'm sorry, not jalapenos, some anchovies. And I, sometimes I get them on the side. All right. And then give us the, uh, the website and Dave and everything for Davis street. Well, it's davisstreet.com. Um, and, um, you can make reservations through open table, just kind of Google or go to Davis street and it'll direct you directly to, uh, to our, our restaurant or right. our site. Mark, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at E Sandler on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.